0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter 4, 1-11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So, as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
1: Thanks, Catherine. Well, um, I don't typically get to talk about this, but um, when I first became a Christian it was years ago in sixth grade, and um, it's interesting because I was thinking, oh, gosh, we didn't get to do this, being waved in the back. We need to dismiss our kids to the back. Five-year-olds to third grade can run to the back, meet a host of folks back there, go on back there. Awesome. Anybody else? Yeah? Whoever just wants to go, just feel free to just kind of <laughs> We had a coffee cart last week. We were outside, and uh, it was hilarious because the service started, and of course, you know, I I'd get up and I'd give a sermon, the line got probably longer, you know, when it was coffee. I was like, oh, okay, time to get coffee now. Uh, but, uh, you know, when I was younger, uh, it's funny, my mom actually, uh, part of my story is, uh, I was uh, you know, only child, single parent home, only child, you know, one of those, I'm a, many of you only children get, get, you know, that rap, you know, that selfish, self, self-absorbed type that we get labeled as, but we're not. We, it's all about us because we're the most important. And, um, but uh, my parents divorced when I was younger and uh, my mom became a Christian later in, in uh, life. I think somewhere at the end of my fifth grade year uh, or sixth grade, beginning of my sixth grade. It was really interesting to see my mom become a Christian later in life, um, uh, in her 40s, and to, to really take on something and, and seeing them and being somebody who's in sixth grade, you know, the, those kind of years of watching my family and what kind of our patterns were, what was valuable to us, and then to, then to see my parents, you know, split up and then watch my mom begin to take on a whole new set of values. Was really interesting and in some ways weird. Uh, I became a Christian, um, uh, a follower of Jesus uh, later in my sixth grade year. Um, But to watch my mom begin to pray and to begin to do things that we never did before and that we didn't really care about before (laughs) uh, was really fascinating. And um, she would wake me up and we would pray in the morning, and we would just pray. And she would pray, and I would probably sometimes fall asleep, just sit on my knees. But she just would continue. She still does to this day. But um, one of the things I remember her talking about was how her relationships began to change, and some were uh, remained the same, and some changed dramatically. And it was interesting to hear her talk about her friendships with the people that, that, that we used to be really close to before. And and now as she began to like think about what it meant to follow Jesus, um, th- these people had a hard time with it. And you know, some of it is, and we talk about things like that, we think, okay, well, we don't want to be come across as judgy or, you know, those kind of things. But it was more about friends who at first thought, church was fine. If you want to do that, it's your thing. Really, we we're like, why are you going to church all the time? Why is the, why is the Bible that important to you now? And for some, it really was so hard to navigate that I, I remember her talking about this when I was young. Some friendships didn't quite stay together like they did before because it was hard. Some of you have been through this before. Some of you may have come through and become a Christian and And really, when you do that, you think, oh, this is gonna be like something great and it changes your life in such good ways, and it does. But it also hands you a lot of difficult things. Because what it does is it begins to show you what your life really was following and what set of rules for your life you thought you had. And now here comes the Lord saying, no, this is what the world is talk about an only child, it's like, you know, you think the world revolves around you and then you realize when you start to follow Jesus, it actually revolves around him. And it changes the course of everything. You begin to, instead of seeing how you do your money, your work, your relationships, your physical life, your emotional life through yourself, you start to see it through someone else, particularly through the creator of those things. And it begins to shape your vision to say, gosh, do I really, did I really understand what I was living for or what I was doing first? You know, we've been working our way through a letter First uh, Peter, and again if, if you 're new to the Bible or new even to church, the, the name Peter may be familiar to you because he is one of the disciples he's, This is the, that guy he 's one of the o g apostles disciples. He not only is in the narrative accounts of the, of the Gospels but in, in acts, but he 's also wrote two letters, first and second peter, and when he did, and you read these letters, you can see where he takes the theology he takes how you live as a Christian and weds it very closely to how you live. In fact, Mark, who wrote the Gospel Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you read it, it's the shortest account of the Gospel. Mark wrote his Gospel following Peter around. And if you read his Gospel different than all the others, Mark gets right to the point. The question is, who's Jesus? Mark's like, here he is. And you can read it almost through the lens of how Peter spoke. Peter's writing says this. In this passage, as we're working through this letter and we're kind of getting to the end, we're we're in uh, the fourth chapter, there's five chapters of this. The question here becomes this. We've kind of looked at different things, work, marriage, uh, all sorts of things like relationships. It comes here to say, how do you live now? How does the following of Jesus impact the way that you're supposed to live and maybe the ways that you're misunderstood. Maybe the ways that you're supposed to live as, as a steward of God's grace that he's given you. What does that look like to hold it in your hands and to live it out? And, and I think we, we may answer that question a lot through um, just conversation uh, or through maybe tradition But we need to come back to the Bible and ask the question, how is God trying to equip us and show us how we're equipped to be stewards of God's grace, the gifts that you and I have? And it's not just the person up here. It's all of us. How do we hold that and live that? And maybe even in ways and spaces where we're totally missed, how we walk and live and play and work in places where We may feel out of sorts, and yet it's okay. This is how he begins the whole letter, elect exiles. And he keeps that theme of saying, there are moments you're gonna feel like you're totally in and moments you feel like you're totally out. And yeah, I gotta hold both at the same time. How do you live that way? So we're gonna look at this passage of the question of what it means to follow Christ. How does it mean what does it mean for you to hold that and to be a steward of God's grace in two ways? One, how you suffer in the body. And two, how, do you, how are you a steward of God's grace? And again, it's going to get really practical. It's going to have a lot of handles to hold on to, which is good. So especially for those of you here that are like, you know, you love that quick, let's go right out the door, apply. This is, this is, the, this is the passage for you. So we'll hit that hard. The first one he really is here suffering in the body, suffering in the flesh. There's kind of two ways of translating that. You know, in, in verse two, it says this, as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. It kind of begins almost like these two paths in a sense. And it actually, it, it could be translated meaning this. It's kind of funny. What are the rules to which you shape your life? So what are the rules by which you live by? You know, you could pull out a lot of different rules by which you live. There may be a, a thing you have like on your mirror. There may be something on your phone, your screensaver. Every time you're like, this is, this is my key thing. It could be a quote from someone. It could be uh, something like, you know, and, and particularly... Uh, I have a coffee mug that was given to me. Uh, it has a picture of Ron Swanson on it from Parks and Rec. Don't know if you're a fan. But it has his pyramid of greatness on it. And at top of it says honor. And then right below it, it has, um, <laughs> it has America and meat. You know, those two things. And it says below it, it says fish is only for sport. It's basically a vegetable. You shouldn't be doing, eating fish, you know. But, you know, what, what, are, what are those mottos for you? Some of them are real key mottos. Some people have tattooed on them, and this is not against tattoos, this is like what you have on your car or on your skin, some Brene Brown, or you have some, some sort of thing like from Nietzsche, that which does not kill me, kills me, makes me stronger. What are the rules that you hold that you have? See, this is where Peter's going with this. He says, going back to verse one, therefore since Christ suffered in his body, so since Christ actually suffered, So when suffering hits, what's the rule you go back to? When difficulty comes, what does he say? When Christ, he begins there, when Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body or in the flesh is done with sin. So what he's saying there, he's saying like, arm yourself. Almost going back to, and this would really be a key thing for them in in that culture, what does it mean for you to take up militarily, offensively, and in strategy to arm yourself with the same way that Jesus actually suffered in his flesh, legitimately in the body, in the flesh. When you encounter that, all of us do in one respect or another. There are little ways that we feel inflicted, find ourselves inflicted, but what do we do with suffering? And why is it important to us because suffering really unmasks what you really live for. It really peels back the layers of who you are. And, and, and I think what suffering does a lot, and, uh, and I think it can happen, is when, when we suffer, not just the small ways, but the large ways, it can be symmetrical with God's relationship to us. And what Peter's trying to get us to know is suffering is asymmetrical to God's love for us. And that is a really important thing to understand. Because when we are suffering, sometimes small ways but larger, to the degree of suffering in the body, in the flesh, legitimately, actually suffering, we can symmetrically look at it as this is God's relationship to us. But what Peter's trying to do, what the Bible's trying to say is it is not. Suffering does not just equal judgment on you. Suffering is not the measurement of your faith. It doesn't mean if you're suffering that your faith is bad or weak or that you did something wrong. This world is actually broken and fallen. Even the second law of thermodynamics says everything is spinning out. So what do you do when you actually suffer? How do you handle that? We might not always understand it. We might not always grasp what's going on even. Sometimes we do. But the question we always ask is why? And if we have a relationship with God, and for some of us, maybe our suffering has pushed us far from God because we have made suffering as symmetrical to our relationship to God. And to say, does he love me this much? Is this his measurement of love for me? But remember what it's saying, therefore since Christ suffered in his body. The, the reason I would say to you, and I've said this to many of you personally, that suffering in my life, um, and I will say I've suffered in multiple ways. Some of you have suffered in ways like this where it's not just been a week, a month, a, a year, it's even been decades. Maybe you have incurred a suffering that is so profound that it is still lasting. The wound is a loss of a child, a friend, a loved one. How does suffering come to you, and how do you measure your life by it? It's not about what you have done or not done. It's looking to God and say, God. What do you measure your love to me by? And he begins with, since Christ has suffered, that God himself puts his own son into the suffering. That suffering isn't a measurement of God's love for you, but it is a marker of how God has taken up suffering to love you in it, to care for you in it. Because what is his measurement? His measurement is Christ. He says, if Christ has suffered in the body, then we can arm ourselves with the same attitude. We don't have to look at suffering as suffering is is symmetrical, as as it carries the same weight as if it's congruent to God's love for us, but it is incongruent. We arm with the same attitude that we address suffering as Jesus did because we are loved that much. And as a result, they don't live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but for rather for the will of God where it drives us to. This is why Jesus came and suffered in the flesh the same way we did, and yet carried those desires, that that longing forward. So this is why verse 3 even says this, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans or Gentiles choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Now, you may look at that list and you may think, okay, uh, I don't, I'm not, not really, no, nah, that's not my thing. Orgy's not my thing, lust, nah, maybe some, debauchery. I mean, you kind of, like, are you dividing it up? I mean, th- what this list is trying to get us to understand is in that time, okay, what they were struggling with in that. And in some ways this was kind of an account of maybe a public party of after someone who had a victory in the Roman Colosseum and they would follow them down the streets. And there would be some sort of public parties and for this, in this sense, it would be a lot. And emphasized the excess and the even idolatry of it. It wasn't just having a good time and a party. It was excess and even idolizing that success. What a pagan was, what a Gentile, maybe in that translation, isn't somebody who like wore funny things and and did weird worship. It was somebody who wrapped their life around themselves. And around this world. And all it can give. Rather than what God can But see, verse four says this, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse upon you. See, they're called to live differently. See, what it means to suffer in the body, it means when you incur this world, where do you go with it? And to live what for? Is it your will? Notice, is it the will of God or your will? And that teaches you to say, okay, am I living for God or for myself? And then when you do that, you begin to have people look in and go, what's going on with you? I remember uh, this, I've talked to so many of you who grew up possibly in, in a home that was not uh, of Christian faith. I had one parent who was and one who was not. I still have uh, conversations with my father who is not Christian and he still makes comments to me about me being not just a Christian but a pastor and sometimes asks things like, are you still doing that thing? And he's serious. You know, when I was younger, it was one of those like, oh, maybe this is this youthful idealistic kind of thing that you're kind of going into this ministry kind of thing. And he, he just asked me last year, is he still enjoying this thing you're doing? You know, a lot of us in this room, I've talked to several of you, have been in certain situations where maybe you're at work and there's a part of you that reveals itself that you are a Christian and people say, wait, what? Uh, This is what it means to be surprised. It means to live out your faith. This is what, I remember my youth minister growing up, he played football at Wheaton College. Wheaton, which is typically a known as a, uh, a school that has a lot of people who follow uh, Christ at it. It's a religious school. He became a Christian uh, while he was on the football team. He p- became a Christian later in, in his college life. He went to uh, a bar where his friends were and ordered uh, like a Coke or something instead. And they all literally, this is not joke, they go, are you okay? What's wrong? Are you all right? He just decided, just in that moment, to order something different. It wasn't just that it was bad, I just didn't want to do that. There are ways, and many of us in this room, that we we ask ourselves, what do we follow? To suffer in the body, to suffer in the flesh, to suffer, we want to avoid it, because we don't want to have the resentment We don't wanna have the difficulty. Now, it doesn't just mean you're suffering in an infliction like a pain, but it also means suffering in this fleshly body. It means in this world. And it means we are going to be misunderstood. And I think one thing that's really hard for us is that we worship not being awkward. We don't wanna be the one that comes across as judgy that fits in, that wants to make Christianity cool. (laughs) We're gonna be the one that does it. Guess what? It's not a cool thing. Jesus's life wasn't wrapped around that. He didn't step into his body, into this world to make it cool. The thing about Christianity is it will be missed. If we aren't finding ourselves missed, because of who we follow, we may have to ask ourselves, are we really wearing the right gospel? And look, I can be a leading person in that. I mean, how many moments have you had where you have a Bible with you or somewhere in maybe your office? Maybe somebody you know that may not know Jesus or want to and you find yourself maybe sliding it over not wanting to have the conversation. Not wanting to make someone else feel awkward. And yes, there is on the other side, and, and yes, Christians have been, and I, trust me, I know this a lot just as much as you, Christians and Christianity has offended a lot of people by being this overtly obnoxious, out there, kind of in your face. That's, Peter is not worried about that. Peter's speaking to a group in this time, in this place, where they're being resented for just following Jesus, saying no to certain things, and having limits. And knowing what their life is around. That's okay. Do we know what that means? Because he takes it from the negative, and then he puts it in the positive. (laughs) Then he begins to say things like, in verse six, for this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead. So they might be judged according to the human standards in regarding to the body, but according to those who, to God in regard to the spirit, because the end is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind that you may pray. He starts to move into that, why it matters, because we're not just suffering, we're not just living in that, we're also stewards of God's grace, as he says, even the gifts that you've received as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. Why does it matter? David Brooks, who is um, an op-ed writer, I really enjoy him, he's written a lot of things. He wrote a book uh, called Road to Character, maybe you've heard this book or even read it, what he does is he compares these two kind of virtues. When he calls resume virtues and the other one he calls eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are the things that, you know, when you're by merit trying to apply for a job, you're trying to say how great you are, these kind of things. But he says eulogy virtues are the ones that when you're not around, when when you're gone, what would people say about you? What are the things that they they would hold up about you? And Peter's even said this a number of times, even to those who are in your face against Christianity. What would they say about you? He even said this in previous passages. But what he says of those resume and, 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 and eulogy virtues is what, what do we really prize more? As we're called to be stewards of God's grace and his gifts in various forms, to carry these things out, are we wanting to carry out our ability to do things or something different? What do we prize more? See, often in our culture, I think we do prize because we're so merit-oriented, we prize the ability. We, 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 we prize the, the, the ability to do something and have it done and have a marker for it. But Peter's saying there's, there's more to that. It's the grace of God, the graces are deeper. This is another place that Tim Keller has, has encouraged me deeply as a pastor and as a thinker of the difference between gifts and graces. Because when we talk about that, for many of us in this room we are like, well, I'm not gifted to do that. I'm not. But that's not what it's about. Then we're, then we're thinking about what we can and can't do, our ability. Grace is hence more on character, who you are, what it really means to have depth rather than just your ability rather than what you're able to do. Many of us in this room kind of think, okay, how can I serve in the church? Or how can I I show the gospel in the community? And we often put a lot of pressure on ourselves thinking that we need to be able to have some sort of thing that we can do. But really the markers are who you are, the character of the depth of that. In fact, Keller, Tim Keller wrote an article even saying that, the da- that uh, spiritual leadership can be dangerous for your health, your relationship with God, because we can use the gifts and think that we're in relationship with God and others by how great we're doing in something rather than the actual relationship with Him and others, At the graces of that, see, it, What's been one of the most encouraging things about what I've seen in our church and what has happened is the people, and this is not me, this is you, the people that you've even encouraged to set in leadership positions, be them elders, deacons, deaconesses, connect group leaders, people like that that are set up in places of leadership in our church we're, we're Nominated and elected, not because they were great up front, in fact, they hate it sometimes. I make them all come up front by the way they 're like, "Okay, is it my rotation? We have them sign up they 're smiling at me right now, but do you know why? Because they were already doing those things, and you recognized it and this isn't this passage is not just saying doing that for just those who are supposed to be in those in, in great positions of leadership, but you're all gifted in that way. Look, verse six and seven, it talks about first, time matters. This reason the gospel is preached, even though those who are now dead, that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. The time we have right now to live into that matters. You know, it, it, Paul and Peter are writing to Christians at the time who were really worried. And this is what verse 6 is saying. It's not preaching to those preaching to dead people. It's saying people who have died who heard the gospel. And one of the things that made them really nervous that Paul had to speak into another of the apostles in a book called Thessalonians was that so many of their, their friends had died and Jesus hadn't returned yet. And they thought, we missed it. We we, we missed his return. And he's trying to encourage them that they have the gospel. Even if they have died, they heard the gospel, it has gripped them. they are alive in the spirit. That God's grip isn't lost in death. That time though matters and what we have and the gifts that we have are to be used now. It's like when I'm driving, I'm pretty — in a couple weeks, we'll drive to the beach, and I guarantee you, and it's without fail. Why do they still do this? This is like a time-honored thing for children. Are we there yet? Like why — why do they still do that? Maybe you still do that. Maybe some of you — like, are we there yet? Well, I, I don't know. Can, can you look out the window? Is there a beach nearby? No! We're like in Alabama somewhere. But at the same time, it's that question, are we there yet, are we there yet? That's what this, this is saying, the end of all things is near. Our hearts actually, our children are teaching us, we should be asking that question. Is he back yet, is he back yet? When is he coming? We don't know the answer, but we should be in preparation for it. Just as much as our, my kids literally will both, it doesn't matter how old they get, they're still going to ask the question, are we there yet at the beach? They're anticipating, they're longing, they're wanting to get there. It's not that they can't look out the side and see, you know, uh buckies flying by. It's the fact that they are longing to get to the beach, They're longing to be there. Our hearts need to be in preparation of that and need to live in that posture. And we need to live in a posture that others matter. Above all, verse eight, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. The word, the Greek words here for love covers is actually an outstretched. It's like almost stretching out and reaching over. It's that love doesn't make sin like, uh, it doesn't matter. But that it covers over it. Almost as if one is naked because they sinned and ashamed. And they're being covered by your love in forgiveness of them. That we are such an easy culture to be offended And yet, how does our love extend in that? How do we treat each other differently so that it does, as stewards of God's grace, go into the relationships in this room and outside of it? And people go, gosh, that's different. I may not get it at all, but the way they love each other, they don't hold grudges like I hold grudges. The forgiveness goes into relationship, and the hospitality is different. Notice it even says this, I love it. Each of you, sorry, offer, verse nine, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's not just opening your home and like, oh, I can't wait to have this party. You know what I wanna say about one of the phrases I've heard about our city that's both sad and something I think we can lean into? There are more and more people moving to Nashville and feel incredibly lonely. I am hearing more people talk about it, and I have experienced it myself. I'll just say I, I see it. Who have moved to Nashville, and it is so welcoming. I mean, CMA, I mean, it's fun. There's so much going on, and yet people welcome, but they're not welcomed in. Hospitality in the Roman culture was very valued, highly valued. That's why it says, and yet without grumbling. Because what hospitality should look like here is different than there. I was just talking to Erin McCabe, who gives such the flavor of hospitality for our church, even in the host team. And she said, she, I just asked her earlier, and she was like, here it is. I love what she said, you have a place to belong in my life, not just a place to come to. That hospitality is you have a place to belong in my life. If we really wanna change that culture of Nashville, which is continuing to grow, by the way, as more and more people not only move here, but have to live on the outside, what a picture of that. Can't even move into the city because of the expenses, everything else. Geographically, How are we showing spiritually what it means to be welcome in that you belong not just in the city but a part of my life? And he finishes by saying this. He says two things. And I want to give this to you to hang on to. Verse 11. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides. So that in all things... God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Look, he gives you two things. One is speaking and one is serving. He gives a huge umbrella to say, every one of us holds a gift of this. And it's speaking or serving. And it could be a little bit of both. And when we first hear those things, we're like, okay, what does that mean? But speaking could look like things like facilitating a connect group, speaking to the kids on a Sunday morning, speaking at VBS, doing a little side class. It's not like standing up. It's not having a theological degree. It's leaning and speaking the word of God into people's lives and being equipped to do so. Jerry Seinfeld said it best. He said, he said, the number one fear of people in America is public speaking. He says death is number two. He means that if you're at a funeral, you would rather give the eulogy. I mean, rather be in the casket than give the eulogy. <laughs> Peter's saying it is not like that. It is not good, about being good up front. And it's not about that. It's, he's saying it's not the fear of saying something wrong. It's about... Entering in and speak, learning, and being equipped to train. And that's what, we're, that's what my job is for you, is not to do the speaking, but to equip you with that. And also with serving. What does it mean to serve? Host team, knowing your work is valuable wherever you go to. Wrapping up cords at the end of this, taking down a screen, leaning in. Do you know who puts the communion cups in front of you in these trays every week? A guy named Nathan Roach. Nathan is a kid, every Thursday he comes and he grabs our cart that has these, wheels it around, and Nathan has special needs. And he serves every single one of you that picks up a cup out of these trays every week just by putting a small plastic cup in the tray. Do you see how you can serve see how you can speak. And you know what this table leads us to do? Exactly what it led Peter to do. You know how he ends the passage? With what's called a doxology. Listen to what it says. He says, to him be glory and power forever and ever, amen. It leads him. He cannot help but have a doxology of praise. When you even come to this table, this table should lead you to be on your toes, because this is what Jesus has done for you. Jesus has suffered, this passage began with Christ since Christ suffered. Look, look, even the gifting is what for praised through that that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Peter can't help but his lips, you can almost hear him saying on the tips of his toes, he's writing this, he's saying all these things and what excites him the most is to even say Jesus' name so that it exudes from him. When you come to this table, this is how you prep to take his, this meal. It's not something that, that you've done, it's not your gifting, it's his grace towards you. It's his grace that transforms you. It's his grace that gifts you to go out and live differently. Because no one was more missed than Jesus even by the people that followed him for three years in his ministry. They left him, his closest disciples. See, none of us have been so missed that we were put on a cross, denied by our followers, run away. And yet all of us for whom he resurrected from the dead could even have death keep us from it so that we would be Him. To God be the glory. Praise be to God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.